The reading today comes from Acts chapter 4, verse 32, to chapter 5, verse 16. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you here. And um, just before we get into the the passage and think about that reading that Molly just brought to us, I just wanted to air a couple of concerns I have about the interview that just happened up the front here. First concern, Ollie Preston said, I think we work eight hours a week or maybe it's ten. I hope you know how much we're paying you for, Oliver. Uh, Secondly, I wasn't quite sure that um, uh, it was clear what an internship is, and so I just wanted to briefly say what what it is that they were... It's a bit like doing an apprenticeship, and it gives us an opportunity to put some intentional time and training into uh, some of our youngsters in the the hope that they will grow as Christians, grow in their understanding, grow in their desire and ability to serve in different ways in church life. And so it involves us uh, teaching them, 
uh, giving them opportunities to serve in different ways uh, uh, and hopefully seeing them grow as Christians. We've done it with Neil, who was doing the interview, with Lee, with James, with a whole, a whole range of people. I like us doing it because I think it's an investment in kingdom growth, not just what's best for St. Stephen's. In other words, I think it's not just good for them, I hope, although I hope there's a benefit for them. It's not just good for us, although I hope there's a benefit for us over the next year or so, but it's a benefit for wherever they end up serving the Lord in whatever capacity because they've been able to grow and learn and uh, all those kind of things. And the uh, funding part, we as a church put $15,000 a year into them and they have to raise 10000 a year. So there's quite a, a component of fundraising for them. That's what they were talking about. So I just wanted to briefly uh, say a couple of words on that, uh, explaining it. Let's pray. I hope you heard the reading. We need it this morning. So, <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for a lovely morning and we thank you for the chance to meet together here at St. Stephen's as brothers and sisters in Christ and to listen to your word. And Father, there are parts of your words which encourage our hearts and help us sing praises to you uh, almost automatically. There are others that trouble us uh, that confront us and challenge us. And I think this morning's passage is, is one of those. So please help us as we spend some time now thinking on what you have to teach us through this part of your word. I pray that um, if we need to change our thinking in areas, we would do so. If we need to change our behaviour in certain ways, that we would do so. Give us humble spirits this morning, wanting to deepen our love for you and our service of you in life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said before, it's very good to be back with you and uh, good to be booking, back into the book of Acts. It's been a couple of months since we were last there and um, boy, haven't we jumped back into it this morning. This is one of the passages that stands out in the book of Acts. And um, one of the things we do at St. Stephen's here is we usually on Sundays go through the Bible, uh, bit by, books of the Bible bit by bit. And that means that we don't get to miss any of the tricky passages. Uh, there's some good parts to that. It means that we don't just hear what our rich ears want to hear. We listen to all of the, the word. We let God speak to us and set the direction for what uh, we need to hear and do. And so this morning we've got a, uh, a tricky passage. The upside as a preacher is you don't have to work as hard on your introduction because normally you're wanting to draw people in and show people why they should listen on a passage like this. People are just going, what is that? Uh, there's enough in our passage this morning, isn't there, that is challenging and confronting. I was going to call this talk, Donate or Die. <laughs> <clears throat> I quite like it, but <laughs> I don't think you can. Uh, but there are two people who die because they haven't given enough to church. I'm, I'm expecting giving to go up huge after... <laughs> Now that's something, If I, I can't call it that because it would fulfil so many people's stereotypes of the church as just people out to get money and to, all that kind of thing. But the, the confrontation is there, the challenge is there and what happens. Also, does this uh, section of the scripture promote communism? Uh, some people think it does. We're told, the believers, right at the beginning of the reading there, the believers don't claim possessions as their own and they distribute everything to everyone. So is the Bible promoting something that many years later Karl Marx would have um, you know, pr pr been a proponent of? Or does God here cause death in people that have done something wrong? Very confronting for people, th these kind of questions. You know, a lot of people would say, well, I like a God who's generous and patient and loves, but not someone who, who can take life or who punishes. 
There's a lot in these verses that challenge us and that we need to wrestle with this morning. Well, before we jump in and uh, kind of get going, uh, it's, it's been a couple of months, as I said, since we've been in the book of Acts. So let me just set the scene again, because this doesn't happen in isolation. It happens as part of the book of Acts so far. And remember, Acts is telling the story of how the good news of Jesus spread. How did Christianity manage to become the major world faith of the world 2,000 years after this man lived? I mean, Jesus, the central figure of Christianity, died. So how did Christianity gain traction? How did it change lives and influence culture and demand such devotion from people down through the ages? Well, it's really Acts that tells this story, or certainly the beginning part of the story. In Acts, we see how after Jesus died, then after he rose and after he's gone now to be with his father at the right hand of the father, the disciples take the good news of Jesus and turn the world upside down. They take the good news of Jesus to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the movement that could very well have died alongside its namesake doesn't. It flourishes because the apostles emboldened by seeing their master conquer death and empowered by the Holy Spirit coming down upon them, go out and they tell people about Jesus and they turn the world upside down. And as we've been reading through the book of Acts, we've been seeing people becoming Christians, changing the way they live, they, they live living for Jesus now. But last time we were in Acts, we started to see that it's not all good. It's not all going well. We started to see opposition coming to the gospel of Jesus going out. If you were here with us, you'll remember that we saw Peter and John, two of the apostles of Jesus, heal a man born crippled. And the religious leaders of the day, instead of praising God for this, or instead of wondering how this had happened and being thankful for the man, were up in arms about what Peter and John had did. They didn't want people becoming, Jesus becoming more popular and this message kind of making things uncomfortable for them. So they arrested Peter and John and warned them, do not speak about Jesus. Uh, Peter said, no, he's going to carry on speaking about Jesus. And in the end, the religious leaders backed away, not because they believe Jesus is real now and those sorts of things, but because Christianity was growing in influence and they feared public opinion. So we saw for the first time Christianity facing opposition from outside the church. This morning, the problems for the church continue, but it's not a problem from without, it's a problem from within the church. And often, very important to know that, you'll often find difficulties from outside your particular life or family or group. You know they're coming, you're ready to deal with them. It's the problems that come from inside that are much more difficult, much more painful. That's what's going on this morning. And so I want to look at the passage in two parts. And I've called the first part, the selfless unity of the spirit-filled church. Let me say that again because there's quite a lot in just a few words there. The selfless unity of the spirit-filled church. Now, although I've said there's a lot in there, it's not a mystery as to why I'm calling it this. Have a look at the, the first couple of verses of our reading. Chapter 4, verse 32. These are extraordinary things. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. It goes on in verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Those are incredible truths, aren't they? 
All the believers are single-hearted and single-minded. We're told they share everything. We're told that none of them were in need. Now, some of you, if you are you're kind of my age or, or, or older, will remember a, a slogan and a, a, a movement a few years ago, Make Poverty History. Well, the early Christians succeeded. There was no one in need within the church family. But of course, it's very important to realise that this was not just because their focus was on social care and social justice. It wasn't just a big social care and social justice effort. The verse in between those two verses is very important, verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Do you see why that's so important? The disciples are still all about preaching Jesus. The people are still all about trusting in Jesus and living for Jesus. That's what it's all about for them. But one result of that is love for the other brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for the church family. Practical, tangible care for each other. And it was incredible. Earlier this year we had a general election, didn't we? And the whole outcome of the election was um, in uncertain even afterwards because it was so close. If any of the parties had been able to promise New Zealand, if you vote us in, there will be no needy person in this country. It wouldn't have been close. Well, no, it probably would have been, because no one believes politicians' promises. <laughs> but that's because politicians can't produce this. But Jesus can. The Holy Spirit in the heart of, of his people can produce this. Christian grace can produce this. And notice, this is not communism. Uh, communism is a, a kind of, this is a simplistic kind of way of looking at it, but it is a, a more top-down forcing of redistribution of assets and resources. This is not that. This is bottom-up gifting. There was nothing compelled here. From time to time, the verse says, they sold. Later on, they're gonna, they're gonna speak, Peter's going to speak to an Ananias and Sapphira, and it's clear Ananias and Sapphira didn't have to sell their house. They were allowed to own it. They didn't have to gift it all. There's nothing compelled here, nothing required. You didn't have to sell your house. You didn't have to sell your land. You didn't have to gift things. People did it because the grace of God motivated them to because their love for brothers and sisters in Christ motivated them to. The Holy Spirit moved people to joyfully, generously, sacrificially look after one another. Uh, it, it so much looks like communism here. One of the articles, remember we looked at a few of the 39 articles uh, a few months ago? Article 34 in the, in the 39 article says you're allowed to own things. <laughs> Because, it, because of the way this has been misrepresented sometimes. But Article 34 also says, but you should be generous, which is exactly right. And notice, they're not just tithing income here, they're giving away capital. That's massive. The church, why is it so massive? Because the church, the people of God, is more than just a golf club where you've got one particular activity in common. It's more than just another society in our culture where you have one particular purpose. The church is bigger than all of that. The church is the people of God, the people who love the Lord, who live to honour him and love his people and tell other people about him. It, and therefore it, has, it impacts every area of our lives. Being part of the church is something that should affect every decision in life, all our plans, all our actions, everything. 
And by church, I don't just mean St. Stephen's. St. Stephen's is part of that, our church family here at St. Stephen's, but I don't just mean St. Stephen's, nor do I just mean the Anglican denomination. I'm talking about the universal church, the people of God. And when you're part of the church, when you're part of the people of God, you're to love the church. You love brothers and sisters in Christ. They're the ones that the Lord Jesus lay his life down for. Why wouldn't we love them as much as we can? This is why the idea of being a Christian and not part of a church family is so wrong. Because you can't love others when you're removed from them. Or it's why, and this can sometimes happen in church life, if you come to church, and and we're at a size at St. Stephen's where this can happen, you come to church but you remain slightly aloof, slightly anonymous. It's where to get stuck in and know people so we can love people. It's why being part of a church family should make such a difference when you're going through difficult times. Because even if other people can't come and take that burden off you, you know that they care for you. You know that they're praying alongside you and will help in any way they can. And in my Christian life, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, I've seen incredible acts of love and thoughtfulness and generosity which has made all the difference to people's lives. I've seen hospitality and money and time and resources shared in wonderful ways. I've seen it here at St. Stephen's time and time again. But a passage like today can always challenge us, even if we're going well in this area. Do we see our money and possessions as ours or as things that have been given to us by the Lord and can be used for his glory and the good of others? Does... Does the mortgage always get first dibs on our money? Then the supermarket, then the internet, then petrol, then coffees, and if there's anything left over, well, then we'll look at how we can give that to the Lord or his people. Or do we put giving to the Lord first and everything else fit around that? But that might affect how I live and where I live. Precisely, it did here. They were selling these things. But it also meant no one was in need. Now, there's always, uh, to to try and put this into practice, there's always three things, I I think, that can go wrong in a church over this. One is a spirit with a lack of generosity or or sacrificial giving. If we don't have that desire for others, it's it's never going to work. We've got to. Uh, Secondly, an abuse of that kind of generosity. This is not to breed laziness. This is not to breed people that just drop hints and are interested in what they can receive and not what they can give. That kind of attitude is just as bad as the first one. But those two things are pretty obvious. You know, we've got to have a generous heart and we can't just be about receiving, it should be about giving. But the third problem is just as bad. People not knowing how to help. People not knowing who are in need. And that happens when we're keeping our brothers and sisters at arm's length, when we're not sharing lives uh, with each other. There's a a real encouragement here for us to be doing that uh, as a church family. The early church were united in heart and mind. The testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the apostles' teaching was at their core and it led to a love for God's people that was radical and tangible. And let me tell you, this was one of the most effective evangelistic features of the early church. When they saw that the people of this Christian group There was no one in need, and they had that kind of radical, tangible love for one another. It was an enormous evangelistic tool for non-Christians. That shouldn't have surprised them. Jesus had said, didn't he, by this will all men know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the church, that's Christians loving other Christians. 
People want to know what causes that because communism without Jesus and the Spirit doesn't result in this. Capitalism without Jesus and the Spirit doesn't produce this. But the Lord Jesus and the work of the Spirit in Christians' hearts and minds can. Can we be better in this area? To honour the Lord, to love his people and to witness that to the world. So, firstly, the selfless unity of the Spirit-filled church. Secondly, we see the opposite. Uh, I should say, actually, the first passage finishes with an example of this happening. Barnabas, uh, well, it's Joseph, isn't it, but uh, better known as Barnabas, does exactly this. Selfless unity, Spirit-filled church, that's what he does. But we're about to move into a different example, the bad example. So, secondly, we see the selfish individualism of human beings. The selfish individualism of human beings. Because next comes a failed example. Barnabas is the good one. Ananias and Sapphira is not. Now, what's the mistake of Ananias and Sapphira? I want to suggest to you this morning that it's not greed in the first place. Chapter 5, verse 1 tells us they sold a bit of their property, and although they kept part of it back for themselves, they brought the rest and they put it at the apostles' feet. Now, what's wrong with that? If I owned a house uh, and I sold it, uh, I would probably presume I would keep some of it and gift some of it to Christian giving. What, what is wrong? They are being generous. They are giving. They are putting money at the apostles' feet. They didn't have to. Remember, that was the whole point of what I was saying before. They weren't compelled to sell their property. They weren't compelled to give all of what they sold. They were free to do so or not do so. So what have they done wrong? At, at one level, they've been generous. What is their problem? Well, look at what Peter says. Now, we don't know how Peter knew that they hadn't given all. I don't know how that happened. It must have been the Holy Spirit. But he did know. And so he says to Ananias in verse 3, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Then he says the key bit. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? So what made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. Peter says what the problem is there. He says it twice. The problem is deceit. The problem is They've lied to the Holy Spirit, he says, and they've lied not to men, but to God. Twice Peter says it. They are deceiving. Have a think about what's going on here for a moment. They want to look as if they're doing a good thing, but they're not actually doing it. They're more concerned with how they appear to other people than concerned with honouring the Lord and loving his people. It's deceit and hypocrisy that's at the heart of what Ananias and Sapphira do here. It's selfishness because it's putting self first, not uh, the Lord or others, but they're doing it in a deceitful way. But as soon as you start to see with it, see it in that way, I think this stings even more. I think it tugs our consciences even more. I, I reckon if it doesn't, we're probably not being honest enough because it's very easy for us to want to appear good in front of other people, but the reality is quite different. And that can sometimes be mixed with good action. They did half a good thing here. But it was mixed with this uh, terrible attitude and de desire to deceive and to be seen in a certain way and not acknowledge the sinner and hypocrite that they were. I do think that before we judge Ananias and Sapphira too quickly or harshly, we should feel the weight of what they did because I can see it in my heart. Now, a couple of other things to notice here in what they've done. 
Firstly, it's very clear that Ananias and Sapphira are in it together. Verse 1 says, Ananias sold the land together with his wife. Verse 2 says, with his wife's full knowledge, they kept back part of the money. And when Peter, in a few verses' time, will ask Sapphira about it, she blatantly lies. So they're in it together, both of them. And I raise that this morning because it's just worth noticing how a marriage can be the source of making each other better or making each other worse. If you're here this morning and you're not yet married but you'd like to be, can I encourage you? You want to find someone who helps you be better than you are by yourself. You want to find someone that inspires you and encourages you. Someone that you respect so much they will help you be a better servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I think that's part of the gift of singleness. Uh, the Bible doesn't talk about a person has the gift of marriage. They do talk, the Bible does talk about a person having the gift of singleness. And I take it that part of that is a, a single person is able to control themselves and look after themselves in a way that they don't need someone else to help them and build them up in that way. They're stronger and better. I, I'm not. I know absolutely in my heart of hearts that being married to Jamie has made me a better man because I want to live up to what she deserves. I want to be the kind of husband that the Lord wants me to be for Jamie. It, it helps, but the opposite can also be the case. You can have areas where you help each other trip up, where you become complicit with one another, where you make each other worse and you join in together with certain patterns of behaviour or belief. That was the problem here. So if you're on the lookout who to marry, think about it. Is this someone who spurs me on to follow the Lord Jesus with more devotion uh, and more passion and more strength? But it's not just for people looking at it. If you're married this morning, be the kind of person worthy of respect who is a blessing to your husband or wife. Be the kind of person who doesn't just help the two of you spiral down into worse things but builds each other up to be better. There's a, there was something going on here. That's one thing to notice. Notice too... I'm not going to try and pretend that the consequences for Ananias and Sapphira here are serious, but I want us to notice more importantly that they are familiar. Now the passage doesn't actually say that God strikes them down for their actions, but I take it that he did in some way. I, I, I take it that it doesn't focus on it because we're not supposed to focus on that aspect from these verses, but it's hard to attribute it to anything else. But what makes it clear? It's supposed to be familiar for the reader of the Bible. If you think back to the Old Testament, there is another incident which is very familiar to this uh, from the book of Joshua. When the Israelites, remember they've been wandering in the desert for many years after being saved from uh, Egypt, they finally get into Jericho. There's an incident with a guy called Achan. All the Israelites are told not to keep the plunder of Jericho. It's to be set aside for the glory of the Lord, but Achan does it. He steals it, he hides it, he's deceitful about it, and he loses his life as a result. It's very similar, these two passages. The people of God both enter a new stage of their life. In one, they're moving into Jericho. In the other, they've just become a spirit-filled church uh, in the absence of Jesus. In both instances, there's someone who acts in a deceitful way, worried about self rather than the Lord and others. And in both, they result in losing their life. And I point out the similarity rather than the consequences because it reminds us that the God that you and I follow 
is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I point that out because some people say today, this is very common, I can't believe in the God of the Old Testament because he's so angry and there's so much punishment and judgment. I'm for Jesus because Jesus is about love and kindness and grace. Uh, That's a really, really common way to think about things, but it's wrong. In the Old Testament, you will see a judging, punishing God, but you will also see salvation and rescue and promises that will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, you see the salvation and grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also get teaching about hell and you also get examples like Ananias and Sapphira. It's the same God all the way through, and that's a good thing. Awful if you're following a God who changes like this. Or who's one way one minute and just in, you know, kind of variable the next. That's not what we've got. And we need to be reminded of both aspects of, that, of our God. If we forget the judging side and the punishing side, then we will lose our urgency for evangelism. We will lose the fact that he is Lord and the one that we owe our lives and obedience to as our creator. We will also lose how loving he is. Because if there are no consequences for the evil in this world, what kind of love is that? But if you only focus on that and forget the loving, gracious side, then you'll only ever have fear without thanks and love. We'll never know how loved we are or have confidence for the future. We need both. Ananias and Sapphira are certainly a sobering example in the New Testament. It's a warning that we don't play loose and light with God and think nothing matters. Things do matter but it's inside the whole of what we know about God. It's very important to remember. Last thing I'd like us to notice from this kind of selfish individualistic part is the the way we treat the church is seen as the way we treat God himself. And when we see this, it leads us back to the first point and the importance of the way we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that make sense? Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church but when Peter tells them what they did he says they lied to God now that's a principle that's right the way through the New Testament we'll see it in a couple of chapters time later on in the book of Acts when Saul before he becomes Paul Saul the guy who's been persecuting and killing Christians is walking along the road to Damascus and suddenly there's the blinding light and the voice says Saul Saul why do you persecute me And Saul goes, who are you, Lord? And he says, it's I, Jesus, whom you've been persecuting. What's the important part of that? Saul hasn't been persecuting Jesus. Jesus has been dead and gone for a long time. He's been persecuting Christians. But so closely associated is the bride of Christ with Christ himself that the way you treat the church is the way you treat the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus gave a parable about a king giving an inheritance, he said it would be given or not given based on whether they had um, seen him hungry and given food, seen him thirsty and given water, seen him sick and looked after him, seen him in prison, all, all those kind of things. And they say, when did we see you, Lord? And what does he say? When you did, the least, uh, when you did this for the least of my brothers, you did it for me. The way we treat God's people shows how we treat the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira have a selfishness because it's not about the Lord first and look, looking after and loving his people. It's about how they looked and how, and how they... Be. What about us? Very hard to be 
God sent, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving your neighbour second uh, in a world as obsessed with self as ours is. We live in a culture at the moment which is obsessed from the moment children are born to teaching them and giving them self-esteem. And there's something good about that. It's awful when a person hates themselves. But it can breed a selfishness that is so awful and isolating and individual-making that the consequences are hugely far-reaching. You don't grow up with a love for others or a need to do sacrificial giving. There's a focus on my problems, my needs, my hurts, my goals, my aims, not looking out for others. And so I'm asking us this morning as a church family, do we show our love for the Lord as we pray for our church family, as we support them and send encouragement, as we challenge them, as we laugh with them and cry with them and and meet round the table with them? We need to. As I said before, Jesus died for his church. Why do we not love them in the same kind of way? Practically, what are we doing here? I've said it before that um, evangelical churches are usually pretty good with truth. We know our Bibles well. We, we can spot error and uh, those sorts of... We know who God is and what he's not. And, but if we're not loving our brothers and sisters in Christ tangibly, sacrificially, we're not healthy Christians. And not only will we not be living for the Lord as we should be, we won't be witnessing to the world as we could be. If there was no one with need here this morning, That's a powerful message for the world as they look at us. There's a challenge here for us. How do we treat the church? Are we part-timers? We come if there's nothing else better to do. Or or are we people who come but keep a distance? We like the being anonymous and kind of not getting too involved. Or are we people who come very hopeful that we get chances to receive and unload our things onto others but not looking out for how we can give to others? Or are we about Jesus, first and foremost? So we love him and love his people. So can I ask you a couple of practical questions? Are you giving time and money and resources to brothers and sisters in Christ in need? Are you seeking those opportunities? Not just when they fall into our lap. I think we all like to think we'd do it if we knew about it. Are we seeking those opportunities? Do you not gossip about other brothers and sisters in Christ? That's loving them. do you allow others to serve you? Sometimes it's hard, we're so proud we won't allow others to serve us. When's the last time you wrote a card or a letter to a brother or sister in Christ who's been an encouragement to you and a help to you? Do you invite people regularly for meals? Because that's the best place to build relationships and to know where there's need. Do you forgive other people in your Christian family when they've wronged you? There's so much we can do in this space, and we need to, because we love the church, because we love the Lord. I've been very challenged and confronted by this passage this week because of my selfishness. I feel, sadly, that there's more Ananias in me than Barnabas. How about you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, I guess, the shake-up this morning and the opportunity to think about uh, our lives and how we live for you and seek to love your people. And uh, I pray for each of us this morning because I I think these are fairly challenging and confronting words to all of us. I pray that you would give us the humility to think about them, uh, wanting what's best for you, 
seeing if there's areas of life we need to change in or do more of or do less of. Please help us as we think about how to best put this into effect in our lives. And we pray that in doing so, we may be loving you with, our, uh, with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and loving our neighbour as ourself. In Jesus' name, amen.